Yeah, so <clears throat> this year, you know, in June, we're going to be celebrating 24 years as a church. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to believe that it's been 24 years, you know, almost a quarter of a century. And, uh, you know, when we started this church, we had a lot of dreams about what God could and would do through us. And uh, many of those dreams have been tied to uh, prophetic words that God has spoken over our church, you know, from the very beginning. And Sam did a great job, you know, uh, last week. He shared a, a really big, one of the big words that were foundational to the DNA and the mission of our church, you know. And, and that, that prophetic word was that God said there would be a youth, youth movement here you know, in this area. That is a woohoo moment, by the way. And, you know, the Lord said that <clears throat> in that there would be just enough, you know, older people to bring stability because we do need wisdom, right? Um, we, need, we need faithfulness and, and marathoners, you know, people who are in it for the long haul. And, you know, that's been a, a dream of mine as well as many here in this church, to see a youth movement happen. And, you know, even through the years, it's been confirmed over and over uh, prophetically uh, through other prophetic voices of people who they have no idea, you know, what God has said about us. You know, that was back in 1998 when the Lord delivered those prophetic words about who we were. Um, but it's been confirmed many times in different ways. You know, the mission of reaching the next generation is absolutely central to what we are doing here as a church. And that's why we tell people who join our church that if God has called you here and you're over the age of 30, then you're here to help us reach the next generation. Now, I realize that can be unsettling if you are here uh, looking for a place to cater to your needs. In our me-centered generation, our consumer age, right, we, we're looking for something for me. Well, um, I want you to know if you're over 30 and you're here, you're here to help us do something. Now, we don't ignore anyone here. Believe me, we minister to every generation of people. We help everyone. But if you are over the age of 30 and this is your home, it's to help us reach the next generation. Now, when I say that, I know a lot of people start thinking <clears throat> about maybe a very narrow kind of work. Uh, they think, oh, well, you must want me a part of the youth ministry or, or children's ministry. And, you know, but I want you to know that's a, that's a very narrow view uh, of how we are going to and are reaching the next generation. Yes, we need lots of people helping in our youth ministry, our next-gen ministry, <clears throat> our, our children's ministry. We, we need an army of people who are willing to, to serve sacrificially in that way, but that's not everything. You know, and, and as I... <clears throat> As I think about 24 years of ministry, I think about a lot of victories that we've had, you know, a lot of breakthroughs in a lot of different people's lives, and, you know, I can think of, of a lot of good things that have happened here, 
Amen. I know maybe not everyone's been around for all 24, but you've been here for a lot, many of you. And we have seen some real moves of God in this place. Amen. But I can also think of some serious, serious disappointments over the last 24 years. Let me share perspective. Oh, thanks, Raymond. <clears throat> Much better now. <laughs> okay, here we go. There's helium in that water. But, you know, in 24 years, um, we've had two entire grade school generations come through this place. And, here, and this is what I mean. And it's not just two, but um, if you were here, if you were a part of our church in 1997 and you were in kindergarten when we started, and then you went all the way through 12th grade, and then starting over, you know, kindergarten, and uh, with the child in kindergarten going all the way through 12th grade, we have almost gone through two complete cycles, okay? Now, we've had lots of graduating classes, obviously, but we've had two complete generations of the beginning of their education till they graduated. And after seeing 24 years, you know, of children raised in this church, I think when we look back, we can actually kind of have a good understanding of how we're doing when it comes to reaching the next generation. And as I look at the lives of a lot of the children who were raised here, and some have done well, but quite a few have not. Quite a few number of our youth have not done well in continuing on in their faith after they graduate high school and leave. I personally know of many youth who were in our children's ministry and then our youth ministry and are now grown, and they do not have an active faith. They're not pursuing God. Many are living in lifestyles that are in opposition to the commands of Scripture, whether it's sexual immorality or drug abuse, drug use, you know, recreational marijuana, uh, just living as if Jesus isn't Lord. Uh, there are unfortunately a large number of youth who have come through our church who do not live a fully devoted life to Jesus. How does this happen? especially in light of our central mission of reaching the next generation. I'm in agony when I think about the scores of youth who are raised in this church who have no relationship with Jesus right now. They have no devotion to the things of God I agonize even now as I watch our youth and young people in this place who care nothing for worship, care nothing for the word that's being preached. 
how do children raised most of their lives in church care so little for devotion to Jesus? How does this happen? Well, I know we have an enemy who loves nothing more than to make a mockery out of our mission. The thing that we say we are all about is definitely the thing that gets the most resistance. And the enemy definitely comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But, before we give the devil too much credit for weakening and wrecking our efforts, I think we need to take a serious look at ourselves. And that is what Eric and I have been doing for about a year now with the help of Alex Fulton and Jeff Hughes. And we've been doing some serious self-examination of our ministry, our families. And I believe there are some things that we need to humble ourselves about. We need to confess. And so that's what I'm going to do first here this morning. You know, we're going to be talking about the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. But I want to say some things that I think need correction. The first thing is this. I, and this is very personal. I, I believe in my ignorance or my naivete. I've always believed and thought that the youth movement that we long to see would come through a dynamic anointed ministry run and led by dynamic and anointed leaders. And in this ignorance, I, I think somehow I believe that parents maybe weren't as critical as they really are. Some part of me believed that, you know, when a revival breaks out, uh, poor parenting would no longer be a negative factor in a youth's life. We could just over, it, it would overcompensate for it. God would do a sovereign move and change these young people into passionate followers of Christ in spite of their upbringing. Now, I still believe in the necessity of anointed men and women of God. I still believe that we need good leadership. But I'm beginning to realize and, and wonder if maybe the number one way that we will see revival in our youth is through revival in the home. There is simply no substitute for God-fearing parents demonstrating and teaching the Word of God and living out a passionate devotion to Jesus. There is no substitute for God-fearing parents demonstrating, teaching the Word of God, and living out a passionate devotion to Jesus. All of the efforts that we put into our next-gen ministry pale in comparison to what a child learns and lives at home. In fact, how a child lives at home has a massive effect on what we teach and what they learn at church. 
For example, when a child uh, lives at home and how they see their parents participate in church either puts a period, an exclamation point, or a question mark at the end of whatever we're teaching here at the church. For instance, if we teach at church that um, you should be serving sacrificially, But at home, your children are treated like honored guests who never have to lift a finger. Then that puts a question mark on what the church is trying to teach. If we teach that prayer is important, and a child never prays at home with their family, when what we teach, guess what that does to our teaching? It puts a question mark. Huh? If we teach at church that worship and Bible reading are important, and every week that child does worship and Bible reading with their family, then that puts a big exclamation point on what we're trying to teach. You know, through my travels and encounters with other ministries, I have seen what it looks like when an entire family is on fire for Jesus. I've been places where I watch mom and dad passionately worshiping God and all of their children from their oldest to their youngest are right there with them worshiping every member of that family with tears in their eyes trying desperately to give Jesus something and they can't get enough emotion. They can't drum up enough love. They can't give enough and they are so desperate to give him something. I've seen it. It exists. I've been places where 12-year-old students lead worship for a room full of adults and it was passionate And it was moving. Those families, they're seeing great breakthrough. They're watching great moves of God in their midst. They're having breakthrough. And yes, they were part of of ministries in churches and communities where there were other passionate lovers of God, but they were practicing something as a family. And it is those children who I have seen grow up and become revivalists of today. I believe we've done a poor job of teaching apologetics here. When students leave our homes and church and go off to college, they are being faced with atheist, liberal professors and students who are extremely aggressive in their effort to wreck your child's faith. And we have not done a good job teaching our children and youth why Christianity is true and why Jesus is exclusively the only way to salvation. It is not enough to go, my Bible says so. So we have not done a good job of teaching apologetics, and for that I am sorry. 
We have overemphasized self-care, and we have underemphasized evangelism. We have taught and promoted and demonstrated how to be healthy and whole on the inside, but we have not done a good job of telling you how to love those who are lost and without hope. We have not done a good job preaching and teaching about what evangelism Uh, about evangelism, nor have we done well in inspiring you to go out and seek the lost. We've done a poor job of making the Great Commission the central important thing of our church, for us as a church and for you as an individual. We have not taught enough nor inspired multiplication discipleship as is taught in the word of God. It's Matthew 28. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm sorry. We've done a poor job of teaching through books of the Bible, making Bible reading and memorization a priority. In 24 years of ministry, almost all of our preaching has been topical preaching. We choose a topic that we believe God wants us to address, and we preach on it. Now, topical preaching... It is a very popular and it is a very relevant kind of teaching. But we miss out on some topics and some important subjects when we don't preach through entire books of the Bible. For that, I am sorry. And I believe that we are all guilty of allowing the public school model be the model that we use in discipling our kids. In other words, send them to church, send them to a program, and the church will teach them everything they need to know. Unfortunately, that uh, model has not been working very well. Children need their parents to be their primary teachers in their Christian faith. Your children need to hear you answer the very difficult questions that come up about Christianity. They need to see your faith at work. They need to see you reading your Bible. They need to see you praying, you serving sacrificially, you loving deeply, you living holy, you speaking truthfully, you going globally. Again, if what we're teaching doesn't line up with how you're living, it's a question mark. If I stand here and I, tell you, and I try to say, hey, slander and, and gossip and backbiting, they're all sins and we shouldn't do them. And then they go home and they live and they listen to you talk about people all week long. It's a big question mark on what the Bible has to say about stuff. 
Your kids are not going to believe me or any other leader over what they see, hear, and live with you. The only time my words will be more powerful than yours is when a child doesn't want the compromised life that they're living at home anymore. They want more of from God than what they're getting at home. But if we practice our faith in front of our children while demonstrating true Christian character and godly living, that will have an exponentially greater impact on our children. How do I know that? Because the Bible teaches it. And I've watched it now for 24 years. I've watched 24 years of Christian families not instilling the character of Christ in their children, who fail to lead their families in a holy lifestyle. And their children show it. Christianity isn't just something we do on Sunday morning. It is how we live every day of our lives. Our Christianity shows up in the kind of language we use at home. It's how, it's, it's, it's what we, how we allow them to interact with the opposite sex. It's the movies we watch. It's the music we listen to and allow them to listen to. It's the social media that we allow. It's in the value that we place on the word of God and prayer and worship and fellowship and, and communion that we do with other Christians. God's primary design and plan for his family of faith is discipleship at home. Our children need to see a, a to, to, they need to live a great devotion to discipleship at home. When they experience passionate Christianity at home first, then they become hungry for what the church has to offer. Again, it is only when a person desires something more than what they are living at home that they are able to overcome and finally seek God in spite of their family environment. And it does happen. That's how it was for me. I was raised Catholic. <clears throat> I went to a Catholic school for four years. I was an altar boy. I went to Catholic Sunday school sometimes. But, you know, <clears throat> at home, my mother watched Christian TV all the time. I watched Christian TV with her sometimes. But I never experienced a passionate living faith in my home. We never prayed except at meals and at bedtime, we never read the Bible. I never saw my parents read the Bible. They did host a Bible study um, but at our home, but our kids were not allowed to be a part of it. Uh, we just did what good Catholics are supposed to do. We go to Mass and go to confession every once in a while, and you're good. 
However, we eventually stopped doing those things by the time I was about 13, which was fine because 13, uh, for me, was the beginning of the worst years of my life and my rebellion. So church really had no significance whatsoever in my life. But it was only after my first year at college that I was finally sick of the life I was living. And I decided I wanted to follow Jesus with my whole heart. It was then that things started to change for me. And by the end of my first year at college, um, you know, at this point, I'm, uh, I'm finishing my, my first year, and I'm, I'm not serious just yet. My mom's found a new church, and she's making me go. And, uh, you know, I was fine with that. I slept through the whole service. <laughs> there were like 20 people in this church, so it was hard not to notice <laughs> me sleeping. It's like a small group in your house, you know. Uh, I couldn't have cared less about it at that point, you know. I just went, slept. And, you know, it didn't really even matter that we were going to a different church because nothing was different at home. We were just spending precious sleeping time in another location on a Sunday morning. We were still just a Sunday morning bunch of Christians. But it was when I was convicted of sin that I chose to devote my life to Jesus in spite of how things were at home. And God does that all the time. But what would happen if at my home we were living out passionate Christianity? What would I have been able to avoid maybe in life? You know, I don't believe that all youth have to go through their teen years in rebellion. I don't think the Bible teaches that. And I don't believe we should settle for it. Our children will believe in Jesus because we are living devoted lives in front of them. They will believe because we, as their parents, taught them how to believe. And I've been guilty, and I'm sure many of you are guilty too, of believing that, you know, just taking our kids to church is enough to make them fully devoted followers of Christ. Now listen, raising our kids in church is absolutely essential and it's important. And and, and here's a little hobby horse. Please stop letting your 12-year-old, your 13, 14, 16, 17-year-old decide when they're coming to church or not. Just stop. You're the parent. You're the authority. You get their butt out of bed and you bring them. If they want to be in their PJs, no problem. (laughs) Please stop letting your teenage children decide if they're coming to church with you. God has placed you as the main authority in their life. And as a parent, we must lead our families by wisdom, not teenage whining or complaining or manipulating or bullying. 
Again, I will say raising our children in church is absolutely central, but it's not enough. Church attendance is absolutely critical, but if we have somehow led you to believe that Sunday morning and Sunday night is enough to make your child passionate for Christ, I'm sorry, we failed you. And I ask your forgiveness. At the very least, we have not emphasized discipleship in the home and discipleship outside the home. For that, I'm sorry. Now, we have done some really good things here as well. I believe we've done a good job of putting the first commandment first here. Matthew 22 says, When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Why don't you say that? Say, this is the great and first commandment. We have done an extraordinary amount of work here to put loving God first. We teach about it. We preach about it. We demonstrate it. We give as many on-roads to help people love God, love God, love God as we possibly can. We've put the first commandment first, and I am very proud of that. We've also done our very best at equipping. Ephesians 4.11 says that he gave some, uh, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We have done an exceedingly large amounts of equipping our church, especially our next generation, for works of ministry. Amen? I would say that most churches I know do not have near the number of youth involved in ministry like we do. In fact, when you study what... what helps kids hold on to their faith after they leave church, they graduate and they go on, one of the primary factors is that they had a job in the church that was important. They did something for the mission. We have involved our youth. We have, we have always emphasized that there is no junior Holy Spirit and that our young people can be just as anointed and powerful as adults. And for that, I am not sorry. <laughs> I am very proud of that fact. And I am very proud of the youth who do participate in this ministry. And they use their gifts for the mission of our church. I love seeing our young people on the worship team and they help in the video and they help in children's ministry and yeah. prayer teams. So proud of that. But training to do works of service, it's not the same as discipleship for godly living. In fact, we know that the scriptures teach that God teaches that God gives us all gifts and they're irrevocable. 
Romans 11:29 says the gifts of God and his call are irrevocable. That means that you can be trained to use the gifts that God has given you, but still have no idea what the Bible says about those gifts. You can be trained to do a job for, in the church and for, for the ministry and have no idea what it means to live a godly life. Does anyone see a problem with that? Does anyone see a problem when a person is trained to prophesy, but they can't prove why Christianity is true? That's an apologetic problem. What about someone who can lay hands on the sick and they recover, but then they lie and cheat on their tax returns and their expense reports? Is there a problem with that? That's a discipleship issue. What about someone who sings or plays on the worship team on Sunday, but lives like there is no God the rest of the week in their home and at school and at work? That's a discipleship issue. I am very proud of what we've done to promote our love for God and God's love for us and training for ministry. But as I see uh, the things I see on Facebook and social media surrounding our current events and people's personal lives, I am convinced and convicted. I'm so convicted by the biblical illiteracy. The lack of godly living. For that, I'm sorry. Back in August of 2014, Dennis Kramer came and he prophesied a lot of things over our church. And one thing that he prophesied was this. He said, I'm going to cause this church to be theologically sound. More sound than it has ever been. For there are some folks in the community that are criticizing this church for not being grounded in the word. They couldn't be more wrong. So we're going to show them. God says this work, this work will be grounded in the word of God. A new emphasis on a working theology that will not be able to be argued with will come to the forefront. In this house. Well, here we are seven years later. I guess better late than never, huh? You know, we're going to continue to keep the great commandment first in this place. The great commandment first in loving God and worshiping God with all that we are. But we are far overdue for making the Great Commission our great pursuit. It's time to shift our focus. It's time to shift our focus to making disciples first in our homes and then with others outside our home all the way to nations. We simply cannot export what we haven't first imported to our families. We have missed the mark in making radical, passionate, aggressive lovers of God and people from the next generation simply because we have not discipled in our own homes. The great 
youth movement that we have been praying for and watching and waiting for, it will begin in our homes. The next generation is going to be passionate and radical and aggressive in their devotion when we model it and teach them how to be those things in our homes. I want you to think about your children as they are right now. How would you measure their radical, passionate, aggressive love for God and others? However you assess it, they are the fruit of your home. They are the fruit of your discipleship or the lack thereof. It's unavoidable. But it's not irreversible. It's not hopeless. I believe God's grace is present right now to make this course correction in our homes and in our church. Amen? Amen. Say it a little louder. Amen. You know, one of the most amazing pictures of God's plan A for discipleship in the home is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I believe Deuteronomy 6 gives us an optimal discipleship plan for how we are to raise up Radical, passionate, aggressive lovers of God. Amen? I'm going to read through this whole chapter, so hang on. We love the Bible, right? Yes. Say, I love the Bible. I love it when you read it to me, Tom. Amen. Verse 1, these are the commands and decrees and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing to the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all, with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. 
Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before your eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us up out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive in this as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now, in chapter 5, just before Deuteronomy, is where Moses gives Israel the Ten Commandments. But here in chapter 6, everything is brought into a laser focus as to what is the greatest commandment. And he said it right there in, in verse 4 and 5. He says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, remember earlier when we read about uh, when Jesus was asked this question, right? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. So if we were to answer the what question uh, concerning Deuteronomy 6 uh, is or what is the meaning, you know, in other words, you know, what is Deuteronomy 6 about? It's about making the, great command, the greatest commandment a first priority in our lives. See, when we keep the first commandment first, then we will keep all the other commandments. When we keep the first commandment first, the great one, love God with everything, then we do all the other commandments. When we love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and strength, then his commands, they no longer become a burden to us. They no longer feel like a ball and chain in our life. Instead, they become a, a path to ultimate freedom. They become God guidelines for living a joyful and fruitful life. When we love God with all that we have, we experience true prosperity. Right? It says in verse 3, it says, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. That's prosperity. Loving God with all that we are and all that we have is the answer to what is Deuteronomy about, Deuteronomy 6 about. But how do we do that? How do we answer the question, how? Well, it's in verses 6 through 9. It says, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up and tie them as symbols on your hands and 
Bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God's plan A for discipleship is spelled out here in these verses. God's plan A for parents to teach the word of God to their children. Everyone say plan A is for me to teach my kids the word of God. You see, as God's people, we are responsible to meditate on God's commands and to keep them in our hearts. That means our, the, the heart is, it represents our mind, our will, our emotions. It means there should be an affection for the word of God, a love for the word of God. I love his commands. I love his words. They get in our heart when we fall in love with it. When we cherish it and it becomes a precious thing in our lives. And when it gets in our hearts and we start to love the word and we love the precepts of God, then that gives us the capacity to understand it and to apply it correctly to our lives. Then we as parents are in a position to impress them on to our children it's like it's like setting like uh, you know uh wax and you stamp something in it and then it becomes permanent or or like clay where you write into clay and then you bake it so it's permanent it's that stamp of of pressing the word of god into the hearts of our children and listen, this discipleship, it's not just a, you know, a formal hour or two of instruction. And moral instruction, biblical education. No, this discipleship is one that makes God and His Word the natural topic of a conversation that occurs anywhere and anytime during the day. That's what verse 7 says. Impress them on your child. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. It is the topic of conversation. Something happens at school. Wow, what do you think you should do? What's the word tell us? Oh, you're experiencing fear and anxiety. What, what's the word say? How do, what should we do? Oh, you don't want to take out the trash. What's the word say? Let's talk about this. You saw something on TV or social media. Let's talk. What's the Bible say about this? You just watched a movie with a really weird worldview. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. What's the Bible say? How does this compare? God's plan A for discipleship of youth is parents love God deeply and teach your children then to love him deeply. Teach your children his word daily and intentional times as well as, as life is happening. But why should we do this? Why is this God's plan? Why should we follow God's plan for discipline our youth? 
It's up in verse 2. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. God wants his family blessings to pass on and build generationally. Listen, there's not a parent in this room or watching online who doesn't want their children and their grandchildren to prosper in life. God himself wants to see his people prosper and enjoy a long life. So what he has done is he has built a system a system, he's built into the system of his holy family a generational strategy where parents train their children and their children's children. And that is because there is no greater influence in a child's life than their home life. If you truly want your children to prosper in life, you must obey God's plan for setting them up for success. Now, let me recap those three things real quick. What is Deuteronomy about? It's about keeping the greatest commandment first, to love and obey him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind and strength. How do we do this? Well, as parents, by loving and obeying God first and then training our children to do the same. And why? So that God's plan for prosperity flows in our lives generationally. Now, let me take this one step further. You see, this discipleship plan in Deuteronomy 6 is so beautiful, and it is so powerful that it is meant to extend beyond our biological families and children. That's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 28. The Great Commission, just read it. Basically, Jesus was saying, and these are, this is my paraphrase, Tom Preble translation. You know, I imagine Jesus saying something like, hey, family, you know, you've been doing discipleship at home with your family for a few thousand years, right? You know, as God's chosen people. Well, now it's time to include the rest of the world. That's right. It's time to include the rest of the world. Go make disciples of nations. God has opened up the entire family to include anyone who believes. And that means every person needs a spiritual parent to teach them to love God and to love others as yourself and to obey everything God has said we should do. That's the Great Commission. The family's been opened up, and we don't get to just do our own. We got to do the world because he's invited us all in. I believe it's really clear what we should be doing. And I think we need to repent for neglecting our responsibilities as parents and as followers of Christ, for not making disciples of our children 
as well as our neighbors. We need to make a course correction. So here's what's going to happen. Over the next couple of weeks, Alex and Jeff are going to come and they're going to be sharing about discipleship. They're going to share some practical ways that we as an entire church are going to pursue disciple making. Everybody say, I'm in. We are planning to roll this out in two phases. First, we want to see families doing this at home. We want to see families make this a permanent, sacred rhythm in their lives. And then once we have had some time to learn and figure out how we're doing this as, as families, then we are going to start the second phase, and we're going to roll out and begin to focus on discipling others. We're not going to just look and create little, you know, hey, you want to read the Bible with me? We're going to go out and find people who need the real Bible, who really, really need it. Lost, not saved. So that's going to be the second phase, is going after the lost in the Great Commission. And we also asked Alex and Jeff to come up with a church-wide reading plan so that we are all reading the same thing. We're studying the same chapters in the Bible and we're going to be memorizing the Word of God together. Everybody. Youth. Yeah. Praise God. There's three people who are ready for this. <sighs> this is how bad it is. <laughs> Listen, we're also going to start introducing more apologetics into our preaching and in our next-gen ministry. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. Listen, our youth are being chewed up and spit out on social media and at college because they have no idea why Christianity is true or how to defend it. We need to, we got to change this. So... We are turning the ship. Uh, we've done a lot of good things over the years. Absolutely, we've done some good things. We've done discipleship in various ways. We're not saying we've done none. That's ridiculous. But we really need to turn our focus to multiplication through discipleship. The Great Commission. And we hope everyone stays on board. It may be a turbulent ride. Uh, we'll probably make some mistakes, but we are going to learn from those mistakes, and we're going to keep moving forward. Are you with us? Well, I encourage us all this week to spend some time in repentance and seeking God's face for our families, but also be praying and asking God who are the friends and the neighbors who are far from God that are in your life, that are going to become disciples of yours. Um, you know, if we were to use a metaphor of a boat, I would say God has built a pretty good ship here at New Covenant. He's really blessed us first to be a worship vessel. But now it's time to batten down the hatches. It's 
time to start sailing as a discipleship. It's time for us to make a great commitment to the great commandment of loving God and the great commission of making disciples of all nations. I think if we will continue in these things in increasing measure, I believe we will see the revival that we've been looking for because it's going to be revivals in our homes. And when you're on fire, you can't help but burn for the whole world to see. Amen? All right, stand and we're going to pray. I'm sorry I went so long. God, I want to just humbly ask your forgiveness. As a pastor, as a leader, as an elder, I, God, we haven't always prioritized the most important things like we should. So I'm saying I'm sorry. I just ask for your mercy, God. I don't want to lose another youth from this house. I don't want to lose another young adult. I don't want to see another kid walk away from the faith who was raised in this house. So I'm asking for help, God. Help me, help our families, help our parents to take this this mandate of discipling our children seriously. So I'm sorry, I repent, God. Forgive me. Forgive us for not teaching our children to be radical, passionate, aggressive lovers. So we're asking for grace, grace, grace to be poured out upon us. As we put first things first, God. We want to make a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission today. So I'm asking that you would do that, God. That you would, you would put it and burn it in our hearts today, God. That we would not let shame have anything to do with this moment. That we would just repent and let your grace flow again. I just break shame right off of us as parents for all the failures that we've done just right now in the name of Jesus. Just release it. Repent for it, but release it. I just declare, God, that we we will obey. So I ask you, God, to seal this time. Bless this beautiful family who do love you, God. We do love you. You know we do. Just been ignorant or naive or lazy, I don't know, but I'm sorry. Help us. Help us, God. We thank you and we love you, God. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.